The Catholic Church identifies her tradition of sacred music as a treasury, yet very few Catholics have the opportunity to experience the fullness of its beauty when they attend Mass on Sundays. Today I am speaking with our very own Director of Music at St. Paul's Parish and Choir School, James Kennerly, about the indispensable value of sacred music in education, the Church, and the world. Welcome to the Harvard Catholic, conversations with interesting people and dedicated disciples of Christ from the greater Harvard community. Hosted by undergraduate chaplain and almost famous jazz drummer, Father Patrick Fiorillo. Greetings, everyone. Don't be fooled by that rock and roll music in the background. Today, we're going to be discussing sacred music. And I have with me here our very own expert in the field, both as a performer and educator, James Kennerly. Thanks for coming on. It's so great to be here. Thank you, Father Patrick. I remember it was about this time uh, two years ago when you were right here auditioning for this position, right? Yes, it was. And I particularly remember that time because uh, my wife was pregnant with our son and his due date was the day after my scheduled audition. And so I was sitting, checking my phone, thinking, is it going to come? And luckily he was perfectly on time. And lo and behold, I went back the next day and he was born and, and all was well. And I think that <laughs> added to your audition because not only were you naturally under so much pressure here, but to know that you were actually, uh, you had a wife giving birth to a son <laughs> while this was all happening. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you could keep your poise during all of that. That was a good sign. So, so good for you for, for that. It passed the test. <laughs> Well, congratulations on all you've accomplished in these two years here. Certainly, this past year has been very challenging for everyone. COVID has thrown a wrench into many things, especially in the music world, Hmm. with singing being deemed unsafe early on back in the beginning of the pandemic. But you've managed to maintain a full liturgical performance and rehearsal schedule with the boys. How in the world have you managed to pull that off? (laughs) Well, that's a question I ask myself just about every day, sometimes three or four times a day. (laughs) And I I, I use the word miracle very, very um, seriously. And I I really think that the reason we've been able to do this in such a full way is miraculous. And I think we have many angels who are looking over us and many saints who are praying for us um, in this wonderful space. And, and, And so I think that's a major reason of why we've been able to do it. There are many practical things, like we have an excellent school nurse and a really good system at the school where the, the singers are um, quarantined if they have any symptoms. They, we have regular testing and pool testing, and, and the families themselves take a great deal of care over who they're exposed to. And, and, and to confirm meant- that miracle, th- there's not been a single COVID test in this entire school all year. Yes, so. exactly. We've not had a positive test. We've just had a slew of negative ones, which is a yep. wonderful thing. It's always slightly nerve-wracking, especially before things like Christmas and Holy Week when we had to do very specific testing. Uh, and, and we've just been really lucky in that sense that our families have kept themselves safe and, and we've been doing, I'd say, 90 to 95% of what we would have been doing yep. without coronavirus That's in great. our midst. Yeah, and, and thanks, too, just to all your colleagues at the school. Uh, we know just for educators in general, it's been a very difficult time the past year to, to stay on top of all this. So yeah. you must have a lot of jealous colleagues in the music <laughs> world, considering that you're able to do all this. And most performance groups are shut down. That's true. They just haven't been able to make music, mm-hmm. and especially sung music, 
uh, often at all. And if they have been able to, it's been extremely restricted and and very difficult to to do anything that's really beautiful and and moving. And and in contrast to that, I often speak with with choir director colleagues um, and say, oh yeah, we did this piece and this piece and this. Now we're planning on our concerts here and then recording here, and they just look at me with this sense of of, of total and utter jealousy. You know, how can how can we make that happen? How can you guys? make that happen and, and as I say it's it's down to a whole variety of things but some luck lots of good faith um, perseverance and an awful lot of hard work it yeah. probably takes twice as much work as you say for educators and really anyone doing anything during these mm-hmm. um, restrictions to, to, to make things happen so we've all been working twice as hard but yep. The boys don't know what twice as hard is because they just do what they what they do. Yeah, um, and, and that's I one think of the, the people things. sitting in the pews on Sunday would hardly know the difference. Yes, that's that's our ultimate so, litmus test. If yep. people say, "Oh, that sounded like it wasn't rehearsed," or "That that sounded very muted," you know, because we sing with masks, and for those of you on the radio, that just makes my voice sound like this. Yep. And you can imagine if you're singing la 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 la. No, 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 no. The amount of muting that it does, putting a piece of cloth in front of your mouth. Um, and yet, we've been able to find techniques to project the voice and create resonance and all those technical things so that their sound can can really sort of shine forth. Well, great work to you on, <laughs> on all of that. So you are from England and most recently worked in New York City. How did you end up here at St. Paul's in Harvard Square? Well, good question. When I was uh, a chorister, I, I grew up in the Anglican church in, a, in my cathedral in my local hometown in Chelmsford, just outside of London in Essex. And I was recruited from my school. There was no choir school per se. Um, they just recruited from a number of schools. And the music director there was the organist, the assistant music director at the cathedral. And he heard me sing and obviously wrote a letter to my parents saying, this guy has some small amount of talent and he's very irritating and doesn't sit still. I recommend you you, you sign him up for an addition to the choir. So I did that. And, and then I was admitted. And that was something I started very young. And of course, we had rehearsals every day. We sang services every day. And it's at that point that I really understood what 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 liturgical music was and the great treasury of Catholic music and of Anglican music and of organ music, which really probably got my interest first because I saw the organ was right behind where we were singing and I would always turn around and stare at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really at about 11, 12 years old, I said, this is what I want to be doing um, for my vocation. And, wow. and I asked the director of music, what do I need to do in order to do this as a job? And he sort of said, you need to go here. You should go to Oxford or Cambridge University, be an organ scholar where you're really sort of immersed in, in this field from a very young age and then just get a job. So I went through doing that and and that's essentially how I ended up at St. Paul's. Um, I didn't necessarily intend to come and work in the States. That was a strange turn of events because someone offered me a job um, when I was the organ scholar at the other St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Mm-hmm. And they essentially came out of the blue and said, I want to offer you this position. And I was a, a young, innocent 21-year-old and thought, oh my goodness, this is great. Um, so I said, yes, of course. Um, took that thinking I'd do it for two, three years just to get some added experience. And then it ended up turning into a, a, a commitment. And then I met my wife, got married, had a child, and as they say, the rest is history. But I've always had my eye on directing uh, men and boys choir. And of course, there is there are really two in this country. There's St. Thomas Choir School in New York City. That's an Episcopal church. It's also a boarding school, which is good and, and, and bad um, in many respects. And then, of course, St. Paul's. And mm-hmm. a very good friend of mine from university was the music director here, John Robinson. And so I knew a lot about St. Paul's over the last um, decade that he was was around, so it was very much on the forefront of my mind as a 
possible right. place to. And there's also uh, the Cathedral Choir School in Salt Lake City. Uh, yes, but yeah, that's the Church boys of the, the, the Cathedral of the Madeleine. Yeah, yeah that, exactly. Yeah. That we have the unique position of being the only day boys choir school. Yep. Um, and that's really important. It's what, something I would love to say wasn't unique to us because I'd love there to be right. many schools that, that, that taught you know, boys' choirs. That's which, right. It's not our goal to be the only right, one. Exactly. We're not trying to shoot down the competition. In fact, when we were founded in 1963, Dr. Mario, Theodore Marier, wanted this to be a, a place where that kind of tradition was nurtured and encouraged and essentially teaching people to, to appreciate that tradition, to teach it, to be priests, to work within that framework. And, and of course, we have many people to speak for that, including our pastor, Father Kelly, who was yep. a, very much a product of, of the choir school. And so we're sort of seeing the effects of that firsthand. That's right. And it was definitely divine providence that Ted Mario was here starting the choir school because St. Paul's always had a very strong liturgical tradition, yep. even preceding the choir school. Right, so right. this was definitely uh, part of a broader plan. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And, and I remember telling the story at my interview that that I have a through my my um, my wife a very very strong historical connection with St Paul's because her grandfather taught medieval history at Boston College for about almost fifty years. Oh. Um, he was called D minus Daly, Bill Daly. Hmm. Um, he, he failed everybody or gave him a D minus, including some current parishioners here who were undergraduates at the time. Hope they haven't given you a hard time. Uh, they, we've had some laughs about <laughs> it, um, and and his widow is still around. Actually, she lives just around the corner in Cambridge Homes, and will be coming to Mass as soon as we're able to, to welcome 99-year-olds. Mm-hmm. She's almost 100. But, but So my mother-in-law would come to St. Paul's in the, the 60s, um, just before and during the founding of the choir school. And they lived out in Natick, but they, but they would always try and come to St. Paul's because of the music and especially the singing, the, the congregational singing. And we were talking about it just the other day, how strong that was and how unusual that was, especially yep. in, in Roman Catholic churches, but also in, yep. in churches in general compared to Europe where people really sort of sing their hearts out in, oh, yeah, in it's, church. It's no secret that uh, Catholic church is, is, does not have the reputation of being a place where people are the strongest <laughs> singers. So, so it, it is striking about St. Paul's, uh, the, the, the amount of engagement uh, yeah. of the congregation yeah. here in the That's hymns. awesome. You specialize in voice, organ, and choral conducting in early music, and that's medieval, renaissance, and Baroque periods. What drew you to that genre? Well, as an organist, our main sort of composer is J.S. Bach, um, and he was born in 1685 and died in 1750. And we sort of think in the music world that he is the, the king of all composers, including the king of Mozart and the king of Beethoven. Um, and so I think Bach is, Bach's music is, is, is the most important to us as keyboard players and also as singers because of his, his setting of the passion narratives and of the cantatas. And in order to play Bach's music, you really have to work your way into that mindset. How did people think in the 18th century What's the kind of music that they used to play? What instruments did they play it on? What buildings did they play it in? Um, and all of that study and, and, and considering how that affects performance is really called historical performance. And it can happen from music written in 1950. You know, what kind of violin did this person have? But, but we mostly apply it, as you said, to medieval, the Renaissance, the Baroque periods, sometimes to the classical, which comes just after Haydn, Mozart, etc., um, but but that sound world is a little bit like, and I don't want to sound like a snob here. I did. I loved New York City pizza, living in New York City. But when you sit in Rome and you eat Roman pizza, you're like, oh, 
this is this is pizza. This is what it should be. Now, a Neapolitan would probably t- call me a heretic and say, no, you have to be a Napoli to have the real pizza. That's right. Um, but, but when you have kind of the real McCoy in the real place where it was actually created, it all sort of makes sense. So musically, that's the same with this historical performance, going back to the, the beginning and the context and, and incorporating that into performances. Really exciting. That's great. I think most people, when they step into St. Paul's for the first time and hear the boys singing, assume that we recruit boys from all over who are gifted with special musical talent. But really, most of our boys don't come here with any formal musical training before, right? Yeah, absolutely. And from what I see, it's mostly of our school population, families who desire this solid Catholic education and are attracted to the, this unique emphasis on music. Yet, within about two years of training here, you have these boys singing at the same level as many cathedral choirs. Yes, absolutely. How does that happen? (laughs) Well, again, I'm going to use the miracle word here because sometimes (laughs) these kids come in and I don't want me to sound like an old man. I'm 37, so I'm not that old yet. Um, But I do remember when it, you know, I tell the choruses, in my day, in my day, in my day. And we just stood still. We just listened to what the teachers said. If if they got angry with us, then we got really quiet and, and just didn't do anything, at least for another day or two. Um, nowadays, there's a different culture. I think the relationship between teachers and students is much more informal um, and they sort of expect us to be their friends. And so, as you say, getting them just to sit down and listen is the biggest challenge. So if a boy doesn't need prior musical training to flourish here, what is required? What do you look for? Well, it, there is that natural tendency to be able to sing. Although I will say that a lot of our best choristers did not come as natural singers. One of our choristers, whose voice has now changed, so it's gone really low like mine, um, who is, was our former head chorister, um, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't come from a musical background and he had no sort of prior experience singing. And within a few years, it was just his thing. He was flying, um, soaring on the wings of his beautiful voice, as I say, until nature checked in and, and the voice changed, yep. the voice broke. Um, so, so that's always what I'm looking for. Is there a spark there? Can I see it in their eye? Do they enjoy this? Is there a, a glimmer of beauty in their singing voice? Are they able to stand still? Are they able to have a conversation? Those kinds of basic things. Well, I can definitely attest to that personally because <laughs> uh, my formal musical training, if you can call it that, is on the drums. And all through growing up in high school, I would have considered myself tone deaf. <laughs> and then I went to conservatory to study music production and jazz drums, started taking ear training, and now I can confidently keep a tune in front of a congregation of a few hundred people every Sunday uh, without thinking about it. And so not, not that I have a great voice in terms of performance, but, but I can sing confidently because I can match pitches and all that. And so I, I feel like I bear witness to the reality that uh, if I can sing, if I can learn to sing, then you can too. And <laughs> I think this phenomenon of tone deafness is definitely overstated. It is, so. it is. And in fact, the experiment I use if I'm really trying to convince someone that they can sing, is by asking them if they can drive a car. Now, in, in Europe, it's much more normal to drive stick shift. Um, but still, if you drive an automatic vehicle in the, in the US, you can hear your car gears changing. You know, the revolutions get up to a certain level, and that's a frequency. And now you, your car would explode if you kept going. And so we're all used to hearing pitch, mm-hmm. and we hear the pitch rise, and we respond to it. We hear the pitch rise. That is being able to match pitch. That's being able to, to have some sense of... of 
of, of frequency. And so it's just that link between our voices doing that and our ears listening to it. So, so in a nutshell, it's possible to teach anyone to sing. Great. <laughs> so send them to us. Exactly. <laughs> I'm speaking with James Kennerly, Director of Music for St. Paul's Parish and Choir School. James, you know this is so much more than a private school with an exceptional music program. Music and liturgy are the heart of everything here. Even the older boys who don't sing in the scola serve at the altar for Mass each day. How does this musical and liturgical formation contribute to the broader formation of third to eighth grade boys? Well, I think the word that you used, service, is really important. That the boys, whether they are singing, whether they are serving... Um, at the Mass in particular, but also at Vespers when we're able to do that and performing in concerts. It creates this sense of responsibility that is really unlike any other. In the choir, they're all part of a team, so it really is about the sum of the parts being the greater, um, greater importance than the individual voices. And that's the same thing on the altar, that, that when we have our servers, they do very complicated um, sort of synchronized swimming movements and... and you can spot the hesitation a mile off. And likewise, when things seem to go naturally, that's because it is extremely well rehearsed and all these boys are aware of that higher calling. And I just don't think there's any other um, institution that really instills that from a young age. We have test scores. We have, uh, you know, tutors who are trying to get us even higher SATs than 2,400 or whatever the maximum is. Um, we've got to that point in, in education, I think, where it's all about the test scores. It's all about black and white, yes or no, uh, full marks or, or just below that. And, and I think the, the, the true virtue in this kind of education is about realizing that, that we're all accountable for our own success. And that idea of serving a higher power, a higher being, a higher organization is, is really so important. And you, you use the word service, and mm. I think that's key, that yes, like, I mean, worshiping God well and beautifully is work, for sure. It, mm. it doesn't just happen automatically. But the liturgy is a, a divine service. So we're, we're doing this work, uh, and as you said, whether it be the altar service together or the choir, uh, this teamwork together to make this liturgy uh, beautiful and worthy and uplifting for, for all the hundreds and thousands of people that, that walk through here yeah. on any given day or weekend. It's so important. As my choir director said, when, when you know, we would be doing evening services with a handful of people, he said, that's not why we do it. This is not a concert performance. We're not trying to please ourselves or please these, you know, these worshippers. We're pleasing God. Yep. And, and I always remind myself of that and the boys of that, that we're not doing this to make ourselves happy or feel good. We're doing this because it's what we are commanded to do. Mm -hmm. And with those voices and with those musical gifts, it really is the, the strongest and the best way that, that they can do it. Yeah, and they should always be reminded that when they're singing, they're praying. Uh, yes. And they're praying in a very elevated way when they're singing, just in general, but especially the particular sacred text that we're singing. Uh, those are those are very profound prayers. Yeah. And, uh, and that is, number one, pleasing to God, but number two, uh, formative to ourselves as well. Yes, absolutely. And that idea of connecting music to things that are important, of course, runs through the ancient Greek um, cultures and just about every culture that we know about that has written down um, reports of how they would proclaim news or how they would proclaim prayers. That connection of text um, in a song form 
elevates it. And and I think in terms of Christianity, we we really do what we are called to at St. Paul's here in terms of just about every page of the Psalms talks about singing a new song or singing yep. praise to God and, and the prayer rising as incense. I mean, you really don't have to look far to see why we're doing what we do. Um, and it also, as the boys say, why don't more places do this? Because it's what we're commanded to do. And of course, that's a very big question. We could have right. a whole podcast series on that. For sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'd like to think, you know, in our corner of the world that we're sort of upholding our, our very best we are, music sure. and liturgy. Well, shifting from primary education now to higher education, we are here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, amid one of the greatest centers of academia and research in the world. What role does sacred music play in this? Well, I think the most important is that the outward signs and symbols of what we do in terms of sacred music, uh, as you said, it, it's beauty, it's uh, profundity, um, sometimes stillness and silence, sometimes excitement and joy. I think the way that music and words together, not just music as sound, but music singing words, um, can bring that those extremes of human experience to people. And I think in terms of the outreach to the community, whether somebody wanders in off the street, they may be distressed, they may be looking for an answer or reconciliation or something like that. Music has that unequal power to, to transform lives. So I think in this environment, the fact that we're doing what we do at the highest level um, is very important because anyone can wander in and and have their you know their entire life and their faith transformed by hearing those sound waves echoing off our extraordinary church building. Yeah, the motto of Harvard is Veritas, which is Latin yeah. for truth. And so, uh, obviously, a everybody is in agreement about pursuing truth. But sometimes we can neglect the reality that. Also, one of the transcendentals is beauty and goodness, and beauty speaks truth in a way that cannot be learned in a classroom. Right, mm. exactly. And I was thinking the other day, there was a, a poem by Keats, I think it's Ode on a Grecian Urn, and it says, Beauty is truth, truth is beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you ever need to know. Hmm. And I, I think I'm probably going to get this printed out and put up in the choir school, because oh. I'm always thinking about it. Uh, and, and we're trying to work out the connection between beauty and truth. What is beauty? You know, as Barlett says, what is truth? Well, I think that the answer is that they they both refer to each other and, and being immersed in both of those are going to inform um, the other one, and which is why we have this really high ideal of what beauty is. And we hope and pray and, and have faith that that will lead us to truth. And likewise, I think anyone who, who's listening, who's part of that um, experience, whether it's the choral music or the organ music of, of St. Paul's, uh, going to experience that same, that same transformation. Sometimes we Catholics ourselves forget that we need beauty too, just in our daily conversions. You know, beauty is not just for us to display to the rest of the world, but, mm. uh, but we need this to, to elevate our own hearts as well, certainly at Mass, but, but also just in general. Yeah. And most Catholics don't get to experience it like we do here at St. Paul's. And mm. what's one practical way in which an ordinary parish can take a step toward providing a deeper sense of the sacred at Mass through sacred music? That's a great question. And again, it's one that we could have a whole podcast right, series devoted sure. to. But Maybe part you know, two. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think the main thing is singing. 
And we touched on it a little bit earlier that some people, there's almost a cultural stigma around singing. I can't sing is something that I hear from a lot of people, especially parents of of choruses at the choir school. (laughs) Truly, um, everyone can sing. You might not think that you sound the most beautiful. And in fact, the way the voice works, because it's part of our body, it's not like we're playing a violin or a piano or a drum kit that's outside of us. It is us. And so what we hear ourselves doing, it's actually different from what the, the rest of the world hears. And and my great love, and in my second life, it's going to be encouraging people to sing in church because it's one of those things that when everybody does, and as as we said, St. Paul's has that tradition going back decades, when, as they say, the whole church sings, then it's an exhilarating experience. It it really is, and it makes you realize that, that everybody is together, sort of everyone is in this. And those prayers aren't just being offered by a very skilled choir or a very enthusiastic organist, but they're being offered by us. And I think that that's the easiest way that even with um, worship songs, which makes me shudder very slightly, because uh, I did not grow up <laughs> in that tradition, but I do know some of them, um, even those sung well can have that effect. And I think that when people sing music that might not necessarily be the most beautiful poetry or the most profound music, if they start singing that well, that will then lead their, their, um, their sort of desire onto things that, that offer more of a challenge. Yep. Um, so I think that's probably the first place to start. We will definitely have to revisit that at a future interview. Absolutely. So. I mean, you know, when I was at school, I went to a fantastic boarding school, Harrow School in London, and we would have... Um, essentially a a, a very broad prayer service in the morning. It would just be the Lord's Prayer um, and some hymns. But singing was really central to that. And every Monday would be hymn practice. So the music director would get up there and there would be the whole school of 800 people. And he would say, right, the church is one foundation. Hallelujah, sing to Jesus. You know, you'd find it. And he would make all those boys, these are all, you know, adolescent, Mm. juvenile Mm. (laughs) kids with changing voices, but they would all be made to sing. And... And after a while of feeling uncomfortable or weird or getting over the fact they thought they couldn't sing and then they could, it, it meant that everybody was able to do this together. And so I have these, these dreams sometimes of having, you know, pre-mass rehearsals where we rehearse the mm. congregation, you know, singing and yep. warming up the voice so that we're able to sing. Yeah, and I would say best. from the priest's perspective, if you want to get people to sing, you don't have to sing anything complicated. That mm-hmm. can begin with just singing. You know, the responding to the priest, yeah. the Lord be with you, and just responding exactly. to that. And, and if everybody just sang just those dialogues, even that alone, without any hymns, would just elevate the mass a lot. Yeah, absolutely. A parishioner said to me just last Sunday when I was walking out of the back of the church, oh, I love it. We know have the choir singing now. Um, I can just listen to them say, you know, sing the Alleluia and the, the, the response to the Psalms. I said, well, that's great, but you do realize those are for you to sing. You know, hmm. that's an invitation in the Alleluia. We, you know, this... Eastertide, we do the Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And then we repeat it um, with, yep. you know, the organ is louder and the idea is that the congregation sings that. Um, and so this person said, oh, I have a terrible voice and I don't want to mess it up. And I said, no, 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 you really must sing it. So next time, you know, next Sunday, try it. And so I'll see if he does. Maybe we'll have to try that uh, pre-mass rehearsal sometime. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The congregation. So we'll see, see how that goes over. <laughs> that, that might work here. Most parishes... I'm not sure I'd want to try that, but, uh, but that might work. So. so the church in her documents, many writings and statements from popes and so forth, refers to her tradition of sacred music as a treasury. Now, interestingly, that term was first used fairly recently by 
Pope Pius X、mm. in his document on sacred music at、mm. the beginning of the 20th century. So, the use of that term, a treasury, describing sacred music, is a very modern term in the span of the 2000 year church history. And one potential problem with that is that when you hear the word treasury, You think of something that's frozen from 2000 years ago <laughs> that we need to preserve, like in a museum.、Yeah. However, in the church, the church's understanding of sacred music and liturgy in general is that it's always organically growing and developing, and it's speaking new to all peoples of all times. So, as a music practitioner, a choir director, How do you go about seeking to preserve this ancient form of music, preserving that and, and passing it down, yet at the same time doing it in a way that it's, it's not just so that we can remember how it was done before, but so that we can make something new every time? Well, I think that's just it that the, the, the word treasury is a dangerous one in the sense that it does make something feel like it should be protected. If something is protected to some people, that means you stick it in a museum behind glass and, and you can no longer sort of feel, you can't smell it, you can't necessarily see it.、Um, the glory with music is it can only happen in real time. And so I think as a concept, it's fine to talk about a treasury of sacred music and certainly a tradition that, that should be cherished, but it cannot be stifled with you know, rules and protection.、Uh, and one of the great things about music, as I say, is it has to be performed. So if you sing, you have to pass new life. You're literally breathing into that tradition. It has to, and it can only happen in real time. Ultimately, music has to live and it has to breathe. And choral music and, and, and sung music and chant has to be. Performed in real time for it to have that effect.、Yep. So、and I, I know here at St. Paul's,、uh, in addition to the chant and polyphony, we hear every day here, you also incorporate some great、uh, modern works of sacred music that organically follow in that tradition. Yes, absolutely. And that's the, the point that I think it's fair to say that chant is our ground zero. That's where everything begins for the. the Liturgical music of, of the church, particularly of St. Paul's Choir School. But from that, composers over the, the, the centuries, Palestrina, Orlando de la Suze, Josquin,、um, Maurice de Rufflet, Marcel Dupre, you know, all the way from the 15th to the 21st centuries, have used chant as an inspiration for their sort of modern take on that kind of music. And so I think that's a really important thing to remember this, this thread of chant that goes through. The, the, the tradition for、mm-hmm. well over a thousand years.、Yep. And I think because we're imbued with the beginning, the middle, and the contemporary part of that,、um, we're, we're extremely well served by that tradition. And it has contributed to the formation of so much of Western culture over so many centuries that,、yeah. we, that we hope that what we're doing here can continue to make a positive contribution to the broader culture. Absolutely. And the same thing, it really is as powerful and as pervasive as Western art. You go to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Isabella Gard- Stuart Gardner Museum, the, the Met in New York City. The, 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 the best, well, I'm highly biased, of course, but sort of the beginning of, of the Western art tends to be Christian art. And those extremely powerful frescoes and altarpieces and devotional.、Um, 
devotional paintings that that sort of inform how portraiture happened, how how uh, point uh, the, the ideas of of point of refraction in light and chiaroscuro and, uh, and symmetry and perspective, how all of those things came about were from drawing churches and, and saints. And, and I think that's really important. The same thing happened with music, that, that Western music was, was formed and informed by the, the great Catholic treasury of music yep, in the last thousand years. So the church's tradition of sacred music is far wider than just... Uh, the Roman Gregorian chant and Western sacred music. Mm. We know that every ritual family in the Catholic tradition has its own quote-unquote treasury of sacred music. So we have the great tradition of Russian chant in the Russian yep. Orthodox Church. We have Byzantine chant. Mm. Uh, we have uh, the Syriac chant uh, in Syria. We have the, the Chaldean chant for the Iraqi Christians. Mm. Uh, and the, there's dozens uh, of different beautiful traditional ancient styles. Yep. But what's unique about the Roman Catholic rite, broadly speaking, is that uh, through the the great works of uh, evangelists over the centuries, um, there are people all over the world who are Roman Catholic that have no tradition, no connection to Rome right. in the way that if today you go to a Ukrainian Catholic church, 99% of the people there are going to be Ukrainian. But that's not the case for us now as Roman Catholics. Mm. Many maybe even most, are, are not of Western European descent. There are Roman Catholics all over Africa, Asia, South America. So what relevance does this great tradition of Western sacred music, you know, Roman, Gregorian chant-based sacred music, have for these other cultures and, and people uh, that have no connection to Rome and Western Europe? It's a fascinating question. And, and, and of course, likewise, we could have a whole podcast series on this. Episode um, three. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, but it's something I think about a lot because, the, of, of course, the idea of attending my, my grandmother, for example, when she would go to Mass, the idea wouldn't be like we do nowadays to sort of actively participate. You would sit and you would observe. You would maybe be praying the rosary. You would be kneeling and, and watching and listening of course, in 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 um, earlier times, in the 14th, 15th century, there would have been a great big screen that, that covered up any view mm -hmm. from the, the nave area. And I explained to the boys who say, well, why don't we have those bells that ring around, you know, during the, the elevation at the Sanctus? Well, of course, that's a, an outward sign to say, hey, you know, this is a very important part of the service. Yep. You know, do something, kneel, genuflect. Yep. Um, and so I think that that in that way, to involve people in in a common um, experience, I think is to, is to go back to something like chant. Now, it doesn't have to be Gregorian chants that, as it became popularized really in the 19th century, and that was by a monastery in northern France in Salem. And those monks are really responsible. It's a modern building, essentially, 19th century building, and a modern idea of collecting all of these chants, mostly from France, but also from Rome and, and Italy and, and all over Europe, and putting them together in these books as if they'd been there forever. In fact, that was a collection of many different traditions. And in the UK, there are what are called these uses. So this is the pre-Reformation time where certain cathedrals like Hereford Cathedral, um, York Minster, 
um, Salisbury Cathedral, they all had their own uses, their kind of own customaries, their own ways of doing the chant. I think if you went from one to the other, or if you went from Rome to Salisbury, you would kind of recognize the vestments. You'd sort of recognize, you definitely recognize the shape of the church. It would have been cruciform. Mm -hmm. You would recognize some of the words, but I think apart from that, it allowed the the various traditions to to speak for themselves. So I think... So there was an organic diversity within this uh, undeniable unity of, yeah, of the Roman absolutely, Catholic Church. absolutely. And so I think that, that that in its modern form could be very popular for, for people, you know, who don't have any connections, you say, to Rome um, or to the Western classical music tradition or to Western iconography and art. Um, but, but as a way of starting out, you know, using chant, um, of course, chanting in the vernacular, which I think is, even though Latin is a beautiful language that I was privileged to grow up with, you know, a certain amount of education in it. Of course, I didn't speak it, and no one does, um, unless they're having a particularly vivid dream. Um, but, but, but I think that, 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 that Latin, for example, brings us together in so many ways because it is a common language. And I like to say that that it's the language that they speak up in heaven. So as you speak Latin mm. as we sell the choir boys, then they'll be able to, to bribe St. Peter. That's um, right. <laughs> well, we'll need all the help we can get. Yeah, so, exactly. So. Well, just to close here, thanks so much for this enlightening conversation. And, and it sounds like we're definitely going to need a few follow-up conversation <laughs> episodes here to delve more deeply into some of these provocative or, or even controversial uh, topics here. <laughs> but just to end on a light note, when, when you need a break from early music, what do you listen to? Oh, boy. Well, I must say that, that I often listen to podcasts because mm-hmm. my, my, my world, my brain, you know, waking and sleeping is, is consumed by music, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often find the most relaxing way to, to switch off, essentially, is to listen to the spoken word. So I listen to mm-hmm. St. Paul's Within the Walls um, podcasts. And the um, the BBC British Broadcasting Corporation, I of course I love because I'm from the B- from Britain, as it were. Right, yeah. um, but they have fantastic news podcasts and, and analysis and things like that. So I often mm-hmm. switch off by listening to the spoken word and sometimes storybooks. Oh, good, that's good. <laughs> you, you do need a break from from even from music too. Yes, exactly. Uh, you don't want it to just be uh, feel like work all the right. time. So. Um, <laughs> Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing with us so many great insights about our Catholic treasury of sacred music. Best of luck to you at the end of the school year and the upcoming Spring Choir School concert. And keep up all the great work you're doing here. It is experienced and appreciated by so many at St. Paul's and the broader Harvard Catholic Center community. Thank you so much. It's been so great to chat. Thanks for listening to The Harvard Catholic. Please consider supporting us by visiting harvardcatholic.org. We hope you'll join us next month as we continue proclaiming the truth and love of Jesus Christ to Harvard and to the world. Amen.